Again, thank you uh, for that worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, we'll be in John uh, chapter 13. Uh, one of the great joys of ministry uh, that I have is, is being able to talk to our children. Um, and last Sunday, uh, I experienced just uh, at the end of the service a rush uh, from some of our children because they wanted to tell me what they got for Christmas. Uh, and in fact, one of the little girls who was shorter, she stood up here so she could be face-to-face with me, which made me feel good because I'm short, so, <laughs> and one day she'll be taller than me. But I love hearing uh, the children. I love talking to the children. I love hearing uh, them, and uh, I love hearing them tell me uh, about the things they got for Christmas and just life in general. Uh, yesterday, Robin sent me a great video of Fiona singing one of our Christmas songs, uh, and I love that. That, is, that might be no offense to you adults. Hearing from the children is probably my most favorite part of ministry. Um, and it's almost, you know, when I get a text or I get the children, uh, and this is how this relates to our sermon today. Uh, last week when they were telling me about their presence, it was as if they were saying, you need to come and see what I got. You need to come and see all this cool stuff or uh, you need to come see me play soccer or play football or whatever it is. You need to come and see. A year ago, we started that sermon series, Come and See. Um, can you believe how fast a year goes, by the way? Um, it's, you know, it's 2023. I did not realize this until like a few days ago, but 2022 was a very, in fact, September of 2022. So I missed it, okay? Missed it greatly. September of 2022 was a big anniversary of mine and Jennifer's. Big, huge. It was our first date, right? Aww. <laughs> I told that to her, uh, it may have been yesterday. I was like, hey, it's going to be 2023. We've been together 20 years. She goes, ugh. That was her response. <laughs> and if you remember back to a year ago when I started the series, Come and See, I used that very same illustration that I met this woman of my dreams and I was telling all my friends to come and see her, right? I wanted my friends to meet her because it was good. So I was going to marry her and I have yet to meet some of her friends. <laughs> so even a year, so again, 20 years, oh, so no, nah, it's been good. She was joking, maybe. So it's good. So we are, I mean, we've been in this series for a year. Come and see. We've been in the Gospel of John. We'll still be in the Gospel of John for several more months, uh, but we are coming to the end of it, when we, or to, the, to a new section. When we started, we started with John's introduction, the first 18 verses, chapter 1, 1 through 18. That's kind of the prologue, the introduction. John sets the stage. Then we spent an entire year studying the public ministry of Jesus. We spent an entire year reading about how Jesus, uh, whether it was explicitly or subtly, that this invitation to come and see who he is, come and see what he is doing is scattered throughout his public ministry, whether he spent, uh, whether it was in Galilee, where the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke they spend a lot of time with that Galilean ministry of Jesus. 
John spends more time with the kind of Judean part of Jesus's ministry with a little bit of Samaria, Samaria, Samaria worked in and then a little bit of what he does in Galilee. But we have seen the, the, the disciples who are following Jesus travel with Jesus. We've seen these, these miracles, these turning water into wine, the healing of the blind, the raising Lazarus from the dead, healing the royal official's son who was sick. We have seen the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. We have seen these just powerful, powerful public proclamations that Jesus has made over the last year and through the first 12 chapters of the book. But when we get to chapter 13, it is a transition. Jesus' public ministry has come to an end. The last time I believe we really looked at this was the triumphant entry, which was really the, one of the last acts of Jesus publicly. We now see the private ministry of Jesus given. I think I, think I told you the book is really outlined with the public ministry, the private ministry, uh, the public ministry is about three, three and a half years. The private ministry is, depending on how you work the timeline, is a few days, or it could be simply a few hours. And then you have the passion of Jesus, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then you have kind of John's closing remarks at the end. So we're now entering this private uh, ministry of Jesus where he is just teaching and preaching a series of sermons, we call them discourses, a series of statements to his disciples, to his closest followers. It's often referred to as the upper room discourse. They find themselves together in an upper room. Uh, as you start in verse 1 of chapter 13, the Passover, uh, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. So Jesus is very aware now that the hour of his death is coming. He's very aware that he is about to depart the world. As we have read this whole book, the cross has just kind of been a shadow. Jesus has said over and over again, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And here it is, hours or days, and Jesus says, the hour of my departure is here. The hour of my death is upon us. This is the week of the Passover festival, the last week of Jesus's life. And he has taken his closest followers together. And he says, I've got some things I need to say. We often talk about last words are lasting, right? The last words a loved one ever speaks to us are lasting words. As important as everything Jesus has taught is, these last things that he's teaching his disciples, these last things are important. He's going to talk about in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, even 17, he's going to talk about service. He's going to talk about humility. He's going to talk about love. He's going to talk about heaven. He's going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. He's going to give them the tools that they need to fulfill the great commission that he will give to them before he departs the earth completely and before the Holy Spirit comes. So that is where we find ourselves. Jesus and his 
closest followers, his disciples, and what we see in these first 17 verses is the heart of Jesus, the servant. Jesus says that he came not to be served, but to serve. And we see right here, John gives us the picture of what happens in this upper room, and it's the heart of Jesus. It's the heart of service. So just pick up with me. Uh, We'll start in verse 1 again. Before the Passover festival... Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Everything that Jesus does comes from love. As you start 2023, I don't know if it was a bad 2022, a good 2022, I don't know if you're starting 2023 bad or good, I want you to know Jesus loves you. He's always loved you. He's loved you from the foundation of the world. He's known every hair on your head, even the ones that fell out last night on the pillow. I counted mine. There were six of them. Okay. Right there. Right. But he knows that. God loves you so much that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for you. Love is the heart of Jesus. Love is the heart of the gospel, everything centers on the fact that Jesus loved us who were his from the beginning and he loves us to the end. That's the heart of a servant. And so with this idea of love, he then does something that shocked everybody. The disciples would have been just mouth wide open because this isn't done. The master does not do what Jesus is getting ready to do. Verse two, and now when it came, now when it was time for supper, now this is a very important side note that John gives us right here. When it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. That's really important. And I'll show you why in a minute. Verse three, Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel around him. The master their teacher, their rabbi took on the garments of a servant, a slave, got on his hands and knees, and he washed their dirty, nasty, Lord knows, smelly feet. I don't know about you. I hate feet. Uh, I hate them. And yet Jesus... This is our Savior. This is the guy who was in heaven in a place of exaltations, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. He left his place, willingly left his place of exaltation and came here 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now, if there has ever been a person in the history of the world who can say, I don't serve anyone, it's Jesus. Because he's God. And yet here he is on his hands and knees washing their feet because he loves them. I think there's two really important applications for us to take from this. First, no one is above serving. No one is at a point in their life or in the church where they cannot serve. Pastors are not, at, they're not above anybody. They should be serving. Chairmen of deacons or deacons or chairmen of trustees or committee members, uh, the oldest members, no one is above service. Everyone should be serving. Now listen, I'm not going to ask you to wash my feet. But there are other ways to serve. Your service means you're putting someone else's needs above your own, your seeing needs, your meeting needs. You're going about your life saying, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? No one is above that. Jesus would be the only person in history who could have said, nope, I'm here to be served. And yet he gives us the example of service. No one is above being a servant. Now, now, for a lot of church people, I don't think a lot of us have that attitude. I think at our heart, we do have heart of service. Here's how I think this attitude manifests itself in the church today, okay? I've paid my time. I've done my time. I'm a pastor, I hear that. I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm not gonna serve because I've done it. It's time for somebody... That part's right. It may be time for somebody else to do it because everybody's supposed to serve. But don't ever think, your time's not up until you're dead. Now, how you serve change. I'm not gonna minimize. In fact, I will maximize your service could be in prayer. You could be a prayer warrior and that's how you serve. But the attitude of, well, I've done my time. If everybody in the church said that, we wouldn't have anybody serving anywhere. Other attitudes that comes up, come up is, hey, I'm just too busy to serve. You do realize Jesus has got a lot of stress on him right now, right? He's getting ready to die. He's got a ministry to kind of wrap up, and he takes the time to serve. And there's other excuses we can make. I'll tell you this, some of us, and this isn't necessarily not a valid reason, but a lot of us like to say, I'm just not gifted, to serve, well, that's just hogwash. Everybody that God has called has a gift. Use it to serve. Again, if you can pray, pray. If you can bake, I'll take your cookies. <laughs> See what I did there? It's no New Year's resolutions for this guy, right? <laughs> Say, I mean, if you're, if you're good at writing cards, write cards. There's no such thing as a little job in the church. They're all big jobs. They're all important. We have to be people who serve each other. That's the challenge that Jesus gives. He says you have to do likewise. You have to serve and love like I have loved. The next thing we see, no one is beneath being served. No one is beneath being served. We look at people in this world and we say, mm, I don't want to go talk to them. Ooh, their feet. Thaddeus' size 15s were probably disgusting. It's like, ooh, I'm not, ooh, that's too much. Nobody's beneath it. Jesus washed them. 
I told you John gives us something very important. Jesus washes 12 sets of Jesus washes 12 sets of feet. Judas is there. Judas is in the room and it's clear at least from John's little commentary that Jesus is already aware that Judas has made the decision to betray Jesus. Jesus is very aware that the very person who's going to turn him over, the, one of his 12, one of the people he has loved from the beginning and will love to the end, one of those people are going to turn him over to set in motion the crucifixion. And he got on his hands and knees and he washed Judas's feet. No one's beneath being served. It doesn't matter what your skin is, how dirty you are, your socioeconomic status. Nobody, if Jesus can wash the feet of the man who's going to kiss him on the cheek and say, hey, kill him. No one is beneath being served. No one is beneath being loved the way Jesus loves. That's the heart of a servant. Then we get into verse 6. You ever notice something about Peter? The only time he really opens his mouth is to take one foot out and put the other one in. That, that's, that, by the way, that's the guy who's going to start the church at Pentecost, right? Peter. Okay, Peter's like the rock. And Peter's like the man. And so here, the man thinks he knows everything. So look what he says, verse 6. He goes... He came to Simon Peter and says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not realize now, but after my death and resurrection, you'll understand it. Don't you love that? Jesus is like, Peter, just, just, this is one of those moments. Shh, shh, shh. You don't get it. But Peter's like, oh, I get it. I know exactly what's happening. Jesus, I'm, I'm number one, Right? He's really not. They're all equal. But anyway, it's, Peter thinks he's the best. So uh, Peter says, you will never wash my feet. That's very emphatic. He says, you will never, ever, 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 ever wash my feet. Here's the thing. This is a cultural idea. It is in, the, in something called the Midrash, which is a, a book, a Jewish book. It is, all, it is pretty much forbidden for a Hebrew to wash the feet of another Hebrew. Uh, the way the foot washing went is uh, you, would, you would come into a house a servant or a slave would wash your feet because your feet are dirty, okay? A Hebrew would not wash the feet of another Hebrew. So Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. Never, ever, I don't care that you've washed everybody else's feet. You're not gonna wash my feet. And here's what Jesus says. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter says, well, then wash all of me. Lord, not only my feet, but wash my hands and my head. Peter's like, give me a bath. Now, again, understand the cultural context. This is is so important. A, a, A Passover feast or a feast like this, people would bathe at their homes before they came. Or they would bathe and then they would come to dinner. So he's already, uh, theoretically, he's already bathed from head to toe. But in the first century, you walked everywhere and you didn't have these nice little tennis shoes like I wear. You had sandals or you went barefooted. So even though your body is clean, 
walking from point A to point B, your feet get pretty dirty, okay? And so that is the custom of why you wash the feet. And that's why he's not washing the head and the hands and the whole body because Peter's already been washed, but the feet have to be clean. Here's how Jesus explains it. He goes, one who has bathed doesn't, this is verse 10, one who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. He goes, you're clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. Listen, this is just going to give some insight into what this conversation between Jesus and Peter is. The symbolism here is Jesus is saying, you're already a follower of mine. You have already accepted, for our terminology today, you've already accepted me into your heart. Peter, you've already been justified. Your sins have already been forgiven. You have been cleansed of the penalty of sin. So I don't need to wash you all over again. I've already done it. But the effects of sin are still real. Even though he's been saved from the penalty of sin, he's not guilty before God because he's following Jesus. The presence of sin still exists. And the presence of sin will exist until we are in heaven or united with Jesus at the end. And so what Jesus is saying, I have to wash your feet because there's still a part of you that's dirty. You're not perfectly clean yet. Sin still has an effect on your life. For you and I, we get this, right? We are sin- For those of us who follow Jesus, we struggle with sin. There are days where we mess up. There are days when we lose our temper. There are days when we look at things we shouldn't, drink things we shouldn't, say things we shouldn't. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means our feet are dirty. The Christian life is a daily process of letting Jesus wash our feet. To let Jesus continuously help us to overcome sin and the power of sin. That's really the symbolism of what's going on. As Jesus is demonstrating service, he's also demonstrating this really deep, powerful spiritual truth. And then this is how it concludes. Look at verse 12. When Jesus has washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. And a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So after this really powerful moment, Jesus looks at these 12 and he says, if you want to follow me, do what I do. Have the heart of a servant. Serve other people. Put the needs of others above your needs. 
That's what a Jesus follower looks like. Serving others because we love others. We can sum up all of, we can really sum up a vast majority, if not all, the Bible with love God and love people. Serve God and serve people. That's the challenge that we have to walk out of here today with is how are we serving? How are we serving? In just a few moments after our uh, last hymn of invitation, or hymn of invitation, we will participate in the Lord's Supper. Most likely the same meal that took place on this very night. As we sing, I just want us to think about how we are at serving other people. I want us to reflect upon the love that Jesus has for us and how we should love others following his example. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people of service. Father, in the busyness of life and the rush, rush and the go-go, Father, help us to see the needs that are around us. Help us to see that people are hurting that people need help, and Father, help us to serve. Father, we all have different gifts and we have different ways to show our service, but Father, just help us to use the gifts you've given us to serve the way you have called us and shown us to serve. Convict us, Father, where we have failed you. Forgive us where we have all failed you. And help us to do better the next time. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.